We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. My dad is off just as much as Justin Trudeau, but he's back now. Hey, hey, Has hey. his silly summer haircut finally grown out? Hey. I hope so. Here's Scott. What's wrong with my dude? What's wrong with my dude? What's wrong with the dude? The daddy do. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Great to have you aboard. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Will Weber is uh, playing your favorites. And the kids in the newsroom watching the world spin as uh, usual. And lots going on today. Uh, tons going on, including, you know, like this, uh, before I was on holidays, you know, everybody's talking about uh, the last um, uh, Civic Day holiday, the August uh, holiday, in which there were... Uh, emergency rooms had to close down and staffing shortages and the whole thing so that became a whole mantra a, a whole chatter uh for the last couple of weeks as you know we've sort of come out of uh covid-19 we remembered the 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 situation that our healthcare was in it obviously uh, drew attention and focus to uh, the weak links within our healthcare system that we need to do more and doing the same stuff that we've been doing for decades and decades and decades is not going to help. And, uh, it's fascinating how that discussion has changed. And, and once again, during the pandemic, we thought, well, all the provinces are in the same boat. They're all trying to work together. They're, they're, they're trying to do, uh, uh, you know, come up with some sort of common template that they can use across the country and we all remember that uh, that when this whole thing started that there was a lot more funding coming from the federal government now that being said many will say we received tons of funding through various levels of government for health care that's not the issue so the interesting uh, thing that's coming out of this and again we're not really hearing a lot from the feds on this we're hearing about dental care and pharma care and things that are built on the same sort of failed system as the as the health care system that by the way, it's not sustainable the way that it's going. Uh, the provincial, the provinces are having a healthcare summit, and this is the Atlantic provinces that are getting together and having a little chat about how and what they can do to work together and somehow uh, streamline and make our uh, beloved Canadian healthcare system uh, a little bit stronger. Here's what the premier had to say about that. We're working. Uh collaboratively together we're going to come up with a strong solution that works for everyone in Canada but again uh, we can't do it alone we need the support of the federal government uh, had a phenomenal conversation uh, with with uh, the minister uh, LeBlanc today and he wants to work with us uh, we we all know minister LeBlanc he's done a great job in working with all the premiers uh, but I, I did mention to him uh, you know I can't have a, a conversation alone uh, this this needs to uh, be with all premiers from all provinces and territories. And this is all uh, happening or all going to happen in Moncton at a healthcare summit that is going on there now. And again, this is exactly what we talked about during the middle of this global pandemic. However, 
as soon as things started settling down and the and the local politics turned into what it normally is, now all of a sudden we're running around looking for the, the same provincial band-aids to fix this problem that's been going on for decades, that hasn't worked for decades. So why are we chasing our tail and trying to, uh, you know, uh, again, put a band-aid solution through what we've been doing for the last however many decades, as opposed to fixing it, finally, finally fixing it. And again, this isn't about how much people are making. This isn't about how we're hiring this or how this isn't a labor dispute. This is about fixing Canada's health care system. And I know it's slowly becoming a labor dispute. And those are discussions that have to be had. But please, not on the backs of Canadians who are trying to fix the health care system. Oddly enough, as we're heading into uh, uh, September and such, there's chatter from teachers unions and from support, uh, education support workers that they, uh, will hold or may hold a strike vote. And I'm like, oh my goodness, here we go again. And they're talking about an 11% raise. 11%. Think about that. Here's Global News, Matt Cardi. QP's Ontario School Board Council of Unions will open voting from September 23rd to October 2nd on whether to set a strike mandate. There is lots of time for this government to get to the bargaining table with real offers and real discussions. Union boss Laura Walton says holding a strike vote doesn't necessarily mean that workers will withdraw services. Now when it comes to wages, QP is looking for annual increases of 11.7% while the government has offered 2% a year for workers making less than $40,000 and 1.25% for everyone else. We do not bargain two-tiered systems and it is a pay cut in the face of inflation that is at 8%. QP and the government have set bargaining dates for Friday as well as three more dates in September. Matt Cardi, Global News. <laughs> yeah, join the club. Join the club. Join the club. Join the club. I don't know. I, I'm, you know, post-COVID-19, two and a half years of a global pandemic, I do not think people have the time for this. People do not have the patience for this anymore because this is not about grade eight, grade age, a great education for our kids. It's not about, uh, you know, great health care for our citizens. Uh, this is becoming all of a sudden everyone's own individual agenda and is being used through labor negotiations and i think canadians want more i think canadians and ontarians want great education for their kids they want a great health care system what they don't want is politicians or organizations going back and forth and back and forth and having the same old discussions that we've been having for decades and decades before a global pandemic. I really don't think citizens have the patience for any of this. They want to see the systems fixed. They want to see solutions. They don't want to be held hostage uh, coming out of a global pandemic. I, I, I just really do not think that there is the patience uh, for this that there once was before we've experienced the two and a half years of a global pandemic. All right, we got a strong show coming up. Hope you hang around for 
it uh, rent controls. Is that the solution, or is that the reason why you haven't built any apartments in the last 30 or so years? We'll talk about that. Also, uh, a major personality in the news world has uh, been fired. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on as well. Lots of chatter lately about housing, although it appeared when we weren't building any, nobody really was having this discussion. And it, it appears that for the last 10, 20, 30 years, this really hasn't been top of mind. And now we find ourselves in a situation with a very low supply and a high demand for housing, whether it is uh, uh, going up or, or going out or whatever way that is and lots of chatter has and we've heard over conversations uh the term rent control being used i'm old enough to remember when rent control came in and virtually stopped the construction of new apartment buildings and all of a sudden everything became a condo so uh rent control is that the uh, answer to the situation uh, and how does that affect supply and demand? Let's bring in Arun Pathak, President, Hamilton and District Apartment Association, and with us now. Arun, thank you so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, and it's a pleasure to be, be here. So what is the health of the rental uh, situation, the rental market? Uh, do we need more rental units being built? Do we need more apartments being built? Yes, before I answer that, there's just one thing I have to say, and it's very important. We know that tenants are hurting and they need help. They need financial help. We need a federal universal shelter subsidy program. We need more rental housing to be built. As you said a minute ago, when rent controls came in, construction stopped. Recently, we've had a little bit of construction, but Considering that, you know, over 40 years, for 30 of those last 40 years, we had zero construction. You know, we're so far behind that uh, we need a lot, lot more rental construction to be able to uh, meet the need. Are developers interested or more interested now than in a building, in building apartment build, uh, buildings? Are, are we making it more attractive? Are we doing enough? Well, at one point, nobody was building realistically, there was almost zero construction. Developers have always been interested if the situation was right. When rent controls had rents very depressed, there was no way you could build and make money. Today, we see sort of the tip of the iceberg, a few developments coming along, but we need sort of 10 times what we're getting. We need a massive construction boom in the rental housing industry and uh, the uh, circumstances still aren't right for that to happen. And with interest rates uh, climbing again, you know, there could be more problems down the road. What about those that will say, you know, if you just allow these developers uh, more incentive, this will just create more and, and in turn drive up rents? Well, I'm not sure what incentives uh, they're talking about. Right now, there's so many disincentives. And I mean, quite frankly, rent control, it's been around for what, uh, 40-something years? Rent control is like wage control, price, price control. They're short-term measures. Long-term, they reduce supply. If you talk to economists, generally, they agree that rent controls will reduce supply and equally, or perhaps more important, they reduce the quality of housing. 
So we know that rent controls have failed the way they're set up. So we need to try something different. And what we need is the government to set up some sort of a system where those who need help get the help they need. We don't ask grocery stores to sell products below cost to poor people. Why should we expect rents to be below market level and for landlords to bear the cost of helping the needy? So we need more development, but rent control has never been uh, one to uh, favor developments and uh, new construction. Is this why we've seen an explosion in the condo market in the last few decades? Well, people had to live somewhere, so they bought uh, condos. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people who wanted to make an investment, a lot of them invested and rented, bought condos to rent out. But that's not a good solution. A condo doesn't have an on-site superintendent. A condo owner doesn't have people who can come in and do repairs and maintenance at short notice. Hmm. A condo is not the solution. We need more purpose-built rentals. And uh, that just hasn't happened under the system we've had recently. Well, when I say recently, for the last 40 years. So, you know, we need to try something different. If something, you've tried it for 40, 45 years and it's not working, let's try something different. You talked about you you talked about the situation. We have to create the right situation with demand being as high as it is and interest rates going up. Are we likely to see that right situation? Well, hopefully the interest rates will be a short lived thing and things will return back to normal. But there are a number of issues. The landlord tenant board backlog is an issue. Various cities and municipalities are creating issues. There are just so many issues. It's a real headache for anybody to get anything developed. Hmm. It's a long-term process. And with rent control, it's always been on and off. Almost every government has made changes when they come into power. So right now, we have vacancy decontrol. So when a unit's empty, a person can upgrade the unit and get a little more rent. That's, you know, there's been a call in Toronto for that to end. Now, I remember back in the 1980s, the late 80s, we would rent an apartment without painting it, without touching it, without anything, Hmm. because you couldn't increase the rent. So there's a whole bunch of factors, but rent control is one of the major ones. And we wonder why we're in the situation we are right now. Arun Pathak with us, President Hamilton and District Apartment Association. Uh, just as we need housing, we need more apartments. And there's going to be a period of catch-up. Arun, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks. It's a pleasure. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, while I was off on a vacation, uh, I guess the news broke that uh, Lisa Laflamme, who is an anchor for CTV News uh, for years, has um, uh, been fired, basically. And then social media took off. A lot of people are upset about it. Um, basically, the company said it was a business decision, whatever that means. Uh, in other situations, some have done something wrong or incorrectly or un- not performed or what have you. It doesn't appear to be the situation uh, with this. However, uh, it is generating a lot of controversy and surprising considering it's all a part of traditional media. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She's with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thank you for having me on, Scott. 
So why the concern here? Obviously, uh, you know, a, a beloved news person who a lot of people have watched and trusted for years. Why is this getting so much attention? You know, I think that at any any time you want to rip off the Band-Aid, such as what CTV did, uh, I think they thought they would have a 24-hour news burn or maybe 48-hour, and then it would be done with. Except what they did not anticipate was the public reaction, which was swift and basically uh, launched by Lisa the Flam's own video that she put out on Twitter, which was very heartfelt. Uh, you could tell by her demeanor and her face that she was still shocked that this was actually happening. And it provoked a lot of empathy from people, whether they were in the industry or not within the industry. And as a result, CTV made a number of errors in how they responded to all of that backlash. Uh, hindsight 2020, but, you know, if you're in your game, which is public relations, perhaps not so much. Uh, maybe they made some very obvious mistakes. What are your thoughts on how they handled this? Well, I think that when, number one, when they put out their statement, I think the first sentence said, Lisa Laflamme is leaving CTV. And I'm like, that, that, that's the first sentence? Hmm. <laughs> And the rest of it was sort of not very empathetic. You know, people are, people were so uh, bemused, not bemused, but they were bewildered about why they let her go. And that statement did not address it other than that we're going in a different direction, which is, as you know, corporate speak for, we didn't like you anymore, so bye-bye. And what happened was that there were enough disgruntled people inside CTV that were named as anonymous sources, but all that they would say was very high up. So it would give them some sort of credibility, whoever they were. And that's when the narrative of, well, Lisa Laflamme went gray and that wasn't, you know, uh, acceptable to those who were running CTV news at the time. And then you started hearing about disgruntled, um, you know, workers, people afraid that their positions, if they were of age. So there was a lot of uh, negative narratives, not only about ageism, but also about looks of a woman. And then they started comparing it to someone like Lloyd Robertson, who basically retired when he was 77, or Peter Mansbridge from CBC, who retired when he was 69. Not only that, but both of those gentlemen, stellar broadcasters, obviously, um, were given such runway that they basically said goodbye for about a year before they actually left. Lisa, on August 15th, was given the green light, I guess, once her deal was negotiated, to actually put out a statement. And then in response to all of that backlash, CTV then decided in the next hour to announce that another great uh, journalist, Omar Sachedina, was going to be her replacement. So not only did they not give Lisa some sort of runway to let this all go but they thought that they could actually stem the tide of the backlash by announcing the new anchor and that just compounded the backlash to something that i'm sure that they're still wondering what happened uh and there was my next question and you said it what happened that's why you get stories about the gray hair and whatever everybody's writing their own narrative because nobody knows what happened so you and i are both old enough to know smart enough to know that at the end this is usually all about the money so uh, what what are we to make of this why is she out the door why is she not there because i have a hard time buying into hair color being you know uh, it, it, I, I certainly see it being a topic of discussion at the meetings, but I don't see it as, as causing this. What do you think happened? 
Well, I think that especially over at Bell Media, you know, they look at all the uh, the salaries and, you know, salary could have uh, played a part in that. But it's not like they're not paying Omar Sachedina. You know, mm. he's not as better in a journalist as Lisa Laflamme, but they're certainly, you know, whoever his agent uh, is certainly negotiated uh, a fair salary for him. And with yeah, but I, I'm I'm guessing he yeah. ain't getting her. I'm guessing he ain't getting her dough. No, maybe not. But you know, yes, salary always plays a part in these type of things, Scott. But do I think that it's the only reason? Mm. I have to be honest with you. No, um, I don't think it's the only reason. And I think that these other narratives, you know, if you think that they're creeping into the public consciousness or being, you know, leaked by anonymous sources just because, you know, yes, people are are disgruntled. But I think that there's a lot of ageism in the workplace, Scott. There just yeah. is. When you turn 50 and if you're working in a creative industry or an industry where your face is part of your currency, people look at that type of stuff. And there are different rules for men and there are different rules for women. You know, when a man is a broadcaster, do you sit there and turn to your partner and say, oh, hate his tie, don't like the way his eyebrows are looking? No. But when it's a woman, you tend to think, oh, maybe she's gained a little weight. Oh, oh, she's going gray. What's going on there? Women are much more susceptible to criticism uh, like that. So I just don't think that this is purely a numbers game. Uh, eyebrows is a great example, by the way. Uh, what about bias in the newsroom? I've noticed that CTV has taken has taken a definite swing to the left in the last couple of years. And in, in, in so much so, uh, you know, anecdotally, I, I thought, wow, they're they're out CBCing the CBC. Do you think that plays any part in this? Well. You know, I've always seen CTV as trying to, you know, stay within the middle. And do I think mm -hmm. that that has had anything to do? They keep citing an interview that Lisa Laflamme did with um, Justin Trudeau. And it was it was a while ago, though. I mean, it was about a year ago. But she was hard on him. Uh, and a lot of people cite the fact that she was hard on him, that that, that angered the higher ups at CTV. And they didn't like that. Well, I don't know. I mean, I rewatched that interview and I think that with any interview with a, a prime minister or someone who uh, high up in government, you know, normally, Scott, they get the questions. I mean, mm -hmm. you and I both know that. So I don't think that, you know, Justin Trudeau wasn't expecting anything but a few zingers from Lisa Laflamme because he looked like he was prepared with all the answers. So do I think that was one of the reasons? It always can be. I remember back in the days of the National Post when, you know, uh, Izzy Asper, who is, you know, uh, has passed a long time since. But when there was control from the publishers um, as to what was going to be written and that kind of got out into the media that they were having a heavy hand in the skew of that. So I'd like to think that our media does not have those type of biases. Of course, I think it is there. But you know what, Scott, I think that it was sort of like death by a thousand cuts. I think there were a number of things that perhaps the executive suite was not happy about with Lisa Laflamme and that were bugging them about her. And they just kept piling up until for some people, it became intolerable. Are you surprised this has got so much attention coming, uh, being from traditional media, old school media? Yeah, you know what? It really has. And I think that when these things used to happen in the past that you wouldn't really read about them. But what keeps giving fuel to fire is that, again, citizen journalism on platforms where people have something yeah. to say. I'm so sorry there's construction happening here. <laughs> and... Um, and what that does is that not only on the social platforms, this is just, you know, the average person, but a lot of journalists and producers and 
uh, reporters and whatnot are all having uh, are all weighing in and continue to weigh in with their own editorial comment. And then you start hearing, and this is this is what you never want to happen. But this is when all the dirty laundry starts to come out, and that's when you hear about they wanted to get rid of this producer or that producer. And honestly, they've tried to stem the tide by saying, okay, we're going to have a third party come in and do an internal investigation as to exactly what's going on, and that will stem the tide but of course we are going to want to revisit that and find out what they found out if they'll indeed tell us Alyssa freeman pr and pop culture expert talking about traditional media and lisa laflamme and her leaving or being forced to leave ctv Alyssa, as always thanks for the time be well thank you so much scott when there's an issue scott is all in on getting to the heart of it this is hamilton today with scott thompson on hamilton's news today's talk 900 chml We've talked a lot about travel in the last several weeks, and and unfortunately, not a lot of it's been uh, positive. However, as a guy who just came back from Europe a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, other than a few uh, inconvenience, it is still great to travel again, no matter which way you slice or dice this. And Toronto Airport Pearson, of course, being uh, number one for delays and so on, although I do believe they are improving that, and they have lost the number one position, uh, which is a good thing. But now we're hearing that come this fall, we could be seeing cheaper flights to make your head spin. Let's bring in Richard Vanderloo, president at TripCentral.ca. He is with us now. Richard, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me. I wish I could sing like Sinatra. There you go. Isn't that nice? Doesn't that make you just want to get on a plane right now and go anywhere? I think of Pan Am or something. I don't know. Exactly. The glamorous days. All right. So obviously things are improving. Let's start with Pearson. Things are improving there. uh, And slowly uh, the bugs are being worked out. What can you tell us on that front? Yeah. It's sort of about time, right? Um, it's, It's the tail end of the summer. As soon as we get past Labor Day, this thing goes into a trough, right? The kids go back to school. The teachers go back to school. It's back to work. The summer holidays are over. Now, Europe travel is still, still ticking along in September. It's a beautiful month to still go to to Europe. But as we get into September, into October, into November, um, demand in general falls. And, you know, there's not as many business travelers as there used to be with Zoom and, and, uh, you know, virtual meetings. So, what you're seeing right now is sort of this, this pent up demand, this seasonal um, peak sort of drop real off, uh, drop off quite quickly. And, and then you're into, okay, we're scrambling to fill airplanes again. So let's lower the fares. Will this give uh, airlines and related industries time to catch up? Cause again, once the gates opened, it seemed everybody jumped on board. I think so. And I think, you know, in in a way, we're in uncharted territory yet again because we really don't have anything to compare this to, right? We hmm. the 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 surge was was stronger than everybody expected. Um, the delays more pronounced and prominent because Pearson is the hub for an entire country, right? So it's uh, it, we don't really know. I mean, the the low fares may stimulate more demand. There's also people looking over their shoulders saying, you know, what's going to happen this fall? So I think. A lot of domestic travel has been sort of delayed. So it's a great opportunity if you have family and friends and across Canada because the fares are great. Um, there may be some consolidation of flights. Like if you if there's 10 flights a day to a certain destination, maybe they cut it back to six if demand is light. But still, you know, I think getting booked early at these fares is a good idea. The next peak is going to be Christmas. 
and that'll be the real measure to see, you know, how how far have we come to actually fixing these problems at the airport and the labor situation at the airlines. Uh, you bring up an interesting point here, Richard, too, because as people are feeling more comfortable, who maybe those that were delaying didn't want to go right away, how does this alter planning vacations for next winter? Well, we see strong demand for next for, for winter um, right now, and, and luckily for those that want to travel in the winter, it's also low season in Canada and Europe. So, mm. you know, there may be a peak of demand for sun, but it's still nothing like the summer travel uh, numbers that hit. Uh, at Pearson and across the country, so I, I don't. I think it's you know other than Christmas peak. And let's face it, if you want to travel at Christmas, you're going to travel. It's the same with the peak in the summer, right? You yeah. you have family to see, or those are the only times you have off. So you just sort of get ready for battle conditions and <laughs> head to the airport early. And you know, hopefully, they've got some of this uh, improved. And how much of what we have experienced for the last year or so, Richard, been just uh, not even so much people just wanting to travel again and get out and about, but also the backlog of credits and tickets that were canceled during the height of the pandemic? Well, there's that. Um, you know, luckily, a lot. Ultimately, a lot of those got refunded during when the government backed right. Air Canada and. So, so a lot of that ultimately got refunded, but yes, there were, there were credits. There's so many factors. There was the factor of people that don't want to travel until the pandemic's over, getting more and more confident and, you know, jumping into the market, the pent up demand, the season, the, the very effect of the, the demand and the airport chaos caused people to say, nah, maybe not. They may show up in droves in, in the fall <laughs> when mm-hmm. the fares are good. So that's why I said we really don't have any any history to go by here. Good point. Uh, the good news in all of this, though, uh, they are predicting there could be cheaper flights coming this fall uh, as things uh, slowly get back to whatever the new normal is. Richard Vanderloop with his president at TripCentral.ca. As always, Richard, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. All right, we've talked at length about the healthcare system in Canada. Uh, obviously, during the global pandemic, we saw many faults. Uh, we also realized that we have to stop blaming the provinces for this, and we have to start tackling this as one. We started to see this uh, in the midst of the global pandemic. Now we seem to be going backwards and into, you know, doing the same thing we've been doing in the past and in the same old band-aids. But there's some pretty constructive thinking going on uh, out east. The premiers of Ontario. Nova Scotia New Brunswick held a summit to discuss health care and where it's going. Let's bring in Alan, uh, sorry, Alan Hale, Queen's Park today and with us now. Alan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thanks, Scott. I'm glad to be here. So we've talked about this a lot. It's great to see the other premiers and other provinces talking about this. What's the objective here? What are they trying to do? Well, it seems uh, based on what they've said this afternoon is that they're sort of putting together this um, united front of sorts to sort of push for a sort of a change in the way that um, healthcare is delivered, at least in their provinces and possibly uh, uh, nationwide. Uh, this is something that uh, Premier Doug Ford has been uh, and his government have been talking about for the past couple of weeks at Queen's Park. They have this new uh, reopening plan that involves uh, some reforms to the um, healthcare system here, such as using private clinics uh, that exist in this province to help uh, clear the backlog of um, surgeries and like diagnostic tests, like CT scans that is quite long at this point. 
And um, it seems like he's sort of taken that idea and he's sort of pitched it to the premiers of uh, Prince Edward Island and New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, who are all also PC party premiers. And they said today that uh, this is something they are they want to see happen. They want to like have a change, a big uh, change to how uh, healthcare is delivered. Although there wasn't a whole lot of detail on exactly what that means. Uh, there seems to be, and here's hoping it's more than just talk, there seems to be more interest, and you did mention that these are all PC provinces, seems to be more interest in this discussion across the country as opposed to each province just going it alone and, and repeating the same mistakes and ending back up at the same place. Well, it certainly seems like it's uh, going in that direction. I don't know how um, this is going to uh, – how much acceptance this is going to get once you get into provinces that aren't um, – run by conservative parties. I'm sure that the um, the problems that have been sort of uncovered or made more obvious by the pandemic has certainly got people thinking about what needs to be done differently. Uh, but everybody is going to have a different opinion on that. There's plenty of people in this province, including the NDP and a lot of like public uh, health uh, healthcare unions who um, see that uh, this is just the PCs trying to undermine uh, public uh, publicly delivered health care that uh, eventually it's going to end up creating a uh, another tier of the health care system that um, will end up cause like charging people fees. And uh, it's uh, all part of a um, an undermining of public health care, which the PCs here deny, of course. So uh, which is which is very <laughs> which is very odd because during the height of the pandemic, it was NDP Premier uh, from British Columbia, uh, Premier Horgan, that was heading all of this when all of the premiers were getting together and speaking uh, uh, about this exact same issue. Is there any other chatter that you've heard with of getting the other provinces uh, involved in this as well as they were during the pandemic? Well, there's been, like you mentioned, they have been um meeting uh, as a group like the premiers in this country. But a lot of what they talked about at that last meeting in BC was about federal funding, about getting more federal funding from uh, Ottawa um, with no strings attached. Uh, This seems like it's a bit of a different take. There was actually almost a downplaying of the like financial side of this. Premier um, Prince Edward Island Premier Dennis King said it wasn't a political problem and it wasn't a... um, uh, a financial problem. It was a, a service delivery problem, a delivery model mm. problem, and that seems like a quite a different. That's cha- quite a change, I feel, than from what we've heard so far. Um, I think we're going to see more of this, and I think there's going to be way more talk about this with other provinces, especially after Alberta figures out who's going to be premier uh, in the next few weeks. Um, so I think we'll see. This is going to be a story that's going to keep uh, developing as we go forward. The premiers uh, out east, including Ontario, getting together and having a health care summit. We'll see where this goes moving forward. Alan Hale with us, Queen's Park today. Alan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Fred Eisenberger, Mayor City of Hamilton, reason being the Association of uh, Municipalities of Ontario uh, had a series of meetings last week where they get to uh, chat with ministers and and uh, talk about what is uh, the priorities of the uh, many municipalities across the province. Uh, and Mayor Fred Eisenberger is with us now. Fred, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, very well, thank you, Scott, and good to be with you. 
So what is the pressing issue uh, from the municipalities at this point when we are where we're when we are where we are coming out of or at this stage of a global pandemic? What what, what are the challenges now? Yeah, I mean, uh, very important ones actually. So we uh, we certainly put in front of uh, the Minister of Finance the uh, the issue around you know the forty million dollar added cost we have as a result of uh, COVID, whether it's uh, you know through the vaccination process or lost revenue in transit. Uh, we've had uh, the benefit of their, uh, their, their them actually offsetting some those costs for you know twenty and twenty one, and uh, certainly we're looking for them to do the same for twenty two and twenty three. So it's a, it, in the order of about forty million dollars they've they've provided with the federal and provincial governments about one hundred and forty million dollars to the municipality to keep us whole, but we're hoping that they stay with us through uh, through the rest of this COVID process that continues to uh, you know provide additional cost or lost revenue for us. We have, um, you know, as you know, homeless and housing issues, and we certainly talked to the Minister of Health about our proposal to do um, uh, house 100 folks that are in, in the homeless space right now that have mental health and addiction issues. And we're looking for the provincial government and the Minister of Health to provide some funding to provide those wraparound supports. So we could house about 100 people right now. We have the space to do that, but... To, to in, that, in, the, in this space, it really requires those wraparound supports to be successful in getting them to a better place. And so we're asking the province for uh, that kind of funding. And they were very positive on the partnership that we've created between the Community Foundation, the City of Hamilton, McMaster University that would do the analysis of this pilot project, and uh, our, our two uh, you know, health networks that uh, are very supportive of this approach. And I think, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that's a cost-saving opportunity. And lastly, I'd, I'd say the, uh, we talked to the Minister of Transport, and as you know, uh, uh, she and I have had an interesting journey. Uh, I have great respect for uh, Minister Mulroney, but she did, you know, initially cancel the LRT project, but yeah. found a way of getting it back on track, and uh, and now uh, fully funded by the federal provincial governments. And um, you know, we're uh, we're quite pleased with the direction that the LRT is taking in Hamilton, and of course, we're both anxious to make sure that it continues. Boy, that must have been an interesting meeting to meet with her and have this uh, this whole project go full circle. Uh, I can just imagine uh, what it was like to be a fly on the wall during that conversation. Obviously, a lot of things moving forward as we come out of this pandemic, uh, housing and health care an issue. How much of this uh, discussion involves health care? Obviously, we're having a big debate now uh, of you know whose responsibility it is, when in the end it's everybody's responsibility at every level of government. Does that take up m- much of this conversation? Is there much that can be done at the municipal level to to to, to help this discussion and help the system? Well, I, th- I think there's much that can be done. I'm not sure the you know the, we're, we continue to add ambulance capacity, and so one of the challenges that we talked to the Minister of Health about was the offloading issue. So we you know we've had a number of occasions, more frequently now than ever before, where we have zero available ambulances because they're tied up at the hospital waiting to offload a patient. So for every ambulance, there's two paramedics. And uh, to date, uh, there has not been a, you know, a process whereby these uh, patients that come by ambulance are, are taken into the hospital in a, in a quick and efficient way so that these ambulances can get back out on the road. This is a very common issue across the province. 
obviously more more uh, significant in uh, in high density areas like Hamilton and Toronto. And there are a number of things that need to be done to try and resolve that. And one of them is, uh, you know, more capacity and funding for the hospitals so that they can actually triage these patients into uh, into the hospital quicker or uh, a triage before they even get to the hospital where the paramedic can actually make an assessment as to where the right place for them to go is. And that's certainly something that's being worked on uh, by the province. And I, I would I, I would hope that they would give uh, paramedics the authority to uh, to make those decisions because there are a lot of people that come to the hospital thinking that if they call an ambulance to get better, quicker service, when in fact they uh, they don't really need to go in by ambulance and therefore not tie up an ambulance that uh, that could be you know better served uh, being available for some critical issue in the in the broader community. Long-term care, long-term health care, uh, you know, capacity is going to be an issue. And in many instances today, uh, hospitals are not able to to put people that are in the hospital into long-term care situations where it's actually more affordable than freeze up uh, freeze up a bed in the hospital. Right now, that that isn't happening as as it should. And so there's capacity uh, tied up in the hospital that uh, needs to be freed up. And, you know, capacity in the long-term care space is going to be very important. And, you know, at the end of the day, it all comes down to, you know, more investment in our healthcare sector. And if COVID has taught us anything, that's an area that uh, has been stretched and strained and continues to be and will continue to be unless there's more capacity investments, more home care investments, more long-term care investments done to, uh, to lighten the load in, in our hospitals and in our paramedic services. Mayor Fred Eisenberger with us, Mayor for the City of Hamilton, uh, reporting on the Associations of Municipalities of Ontario and what they talked uh, about during this uh, year's meetings. Fred, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Over the last uh, week, we've uh, heard more and more about uh, the recent departure of uh, Lisa Laflamme from CTV. Uh, ageism, sexism, a victim of a toxic workplace. Who knows? Uh, I think that's one of the reasons people are so um, concerned, and, and this is such an issue, is that nobody really knows what happened uh, other than it was a business decision on her getting let go. Let's bring in employment lawyer Howard Levitt. He is with us now. Howard, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for the time, Howard. Uh, CTV saying this was a, quote, business decision. Do they owe anyone anything other than that? Well, not if they, if they don't owe anyone anything legally, but if they want to keep any viewers, they'd better well come forward because people are pretty outraged. The people are pretty outraged at the context of ageism, of gender discrimination. You know, I'm acting for another client, Danielle Graham, who's made identical allegations, the statement of claim, and all of a sudden, now they're interested in investigation. Why weren't they when the same allegations were made and even more directly from Danielle Graham, who was a host of eTalk? So they're in real trouble right now. Everybody's talking about it, and nobody's happy. Uh, and as a result of nobody really getting any sort of explanation, they make up their own stories, and whether it's the gray hair, this, that, or the other, uh, the story continues on. They say... Their explanation was she was offered other alternatives, and she declined them. Hmm. Let me say this. If they offered her the janitor's job, and I'm joking, of course, to make a point. If they offered her a job, I don't know, in the Saskatoon office doing bit pieces, they would be, they, that was something she has a right to decline. If they offered her something valuable, something worthwhile, 
Don't you think they'd be telling us that instead of saying she was offered other alternatives? They'd be saying, look what we offered her, and she said no to that. That would be good propaganda in response. But just saying we offered her other things without giving any detail leads you to believe that they weren't palatable alternatives, and if they announced what the alternatives were, the public would even be more angry. It didn't appear to be a performance issue. She certainly does very well in ratings and such and has won uh, many awards as a result of this. Are we to assume that a business, uh, this business decision is all about money? I don't know. Uh, that is not the assumption people are making. People are making the assumption that it's about ageism and it's about gender discrimination. Uh, you have a more, frankly, palatable alternative than the public's making. Given how well they're doing in the ratings, you would think they wouldn't play with that if it was just about money because they're going to be losing a lot of money going forward. Who is going to be advertising? We're not reached the stage of boycotts of CTV, obviously, yet. Not enough information is adverse to them has leaked out. But if you're, and I'm someone who buys advertising for my, for my law firm, well, I look at ratings in deciding how much I'm going to spend. And so does everybody who's buying advertising. You're in that business, too, so you know that. So why would you take out the top broadcaster in the country who you're lucky enough to have, hmm. who's filling a million-plus viewers every single day? Money isn't going to compensate for that in terms of saving your salary. So they save $100,000 of your salary, $150,000 of your salary. How many millions of dollars are they losing in national advertising? It, it, hmm. that, is not, that is not the reason. Once the bad publicity started to percolate, uh, then they said there was going to be a third-party review. What does that say to announce that after the fact? Well, it says that, why? first of all, you say, why did they do that when Danielle Graham launched her claim? And I say a more aggressive claim than anything Lisa's ever said. And secondly, I'll tell you about third-party reviews. They're a smokescreen 98% of the time. They're intended just punt the thing down the block until everybody's forgotten the story, and then sometime later, in nine months from now, they say the investigators come up with a conclusion. They don't even tell you what the conclusion is, or no one cares anymore, or people have forgotten. That's what it does. And who are the, is the investigator? Is it a senior retired judge? Then I take it seriously. Or is it just a hired gun, some lawyer who's hoping to get more work from it, or do whatever CTV says? So don't be caught with a smokescreen of an investigation. It's a sham 95% of the time. What about your thoughts, whether you agree or disagree with you know what has happened here, of how CTV handled this? Uh, what could they have done better? Well, they could have not fired her in the first place. Mm -hmm. They could have not let their egos get in the way, if that's what caused it. They could have had a a good storyline, a good crisis management. You know, there's firms like Navigator who do this stuff for a living and do it very well, who help companies come up with good PR campaigns where there's going to be a crisis. And everyone could foresee there'd be a crisis. You're going to suddenly get rid of Lisa Flam when she's not ready to go and she's doing a great job and everybody's been happy with her. She's got far and away the highest ratings in the country. So why haven't they got their storyline on it? But it's not just the public. It's not just advertisers. It's for employees. Everybody's thinking, if they can do that to her, I guess they can do it to me. Maybe I don't want to work for Bell Media. Maybe Where do you I want think to work this for Rogers or Chorus or somebody else instead or CBC? Uh, I'm not sure any one of them is any better than the other. Uh, Howard, well, where do you not, think this? That's not my experience, but okay. Okay, well, you you have it, not me. Um, where do you think this is going? I think it's going well. I'm what they want to do 
is have some investigation, do something that they probably advise in advance what they want from the investigator, and it gets punted into the future, and they say, we're doing an investigation, we're doing an investigation, everybody forgets about the story, and at some point the investigation's over. Oh, we've taken the necessary steps. What steps? Well, <laughs> probably not many steps. We'll make sure this never happens again, whatever this is. Uh, that's, what they, that's where they want it to go. What might happen is they're going to lose a lot of viewership, and Lisa Flem maybe ends up as one of the competitors. Are you surprised how much attention this has received, Howard? Only because the Danielle Graham case received so little relative attention am I surprised how much this is received. But on the other hand, when you look at who our best-known personalities in television and radio combined are, she's probably at the top of the list right now. I mean, even before she was fired. So... Looking back objectively, it's not that shocking. And given how badly Bell handled it, it's not that shocking. I think it could have been handled in a way that would have avoided 90% of this. Howard Levitt with us, employment lawyer, talking about the dismissal of Lisa LaFlemme from CTV. Howard, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks for having you, too. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Phone lines open. Natalia's on the line. Uh, Your thoughts, Natalia? Well, my thoughts are, first of all, I'm very, very sad to hear about her departure. I have been watching Lisa since the 80s, and, and I thought she was brilliant. I thought she delivered the news with the utmost respect and integrity. I thought she was a, 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 an awesome journalist and news anchor, and you name it, just to say the few. Her video was heartfelt. I watched her video with her message, and now Bell Media went about it. It's, it's like a, a, they're a bunch of skunks. Let's put it that way. Um, All right. All right, Natalia, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. A new survey from Angus Reid. You know, I love doing the surveys. It's just, you know, the pulse of Canadians, we get to right there in front of us in black and white. And here's one that'll surprise you. Four in five Canadians are pinching pennies due to inflation. Still, yes, it's hurting us. To talk more about all of this, John Rowe, research associate with Angus Reid and with us now. John, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, doing great. How are you, Scott? I'm doing well, thanks. You know, it was interesting as the pandemic was coming to an end, everybody wanted to get out and shop local and support local, whether it was restaurants or retail or what have you. Now it's like, holy smokes, look at these prices. And it really looks like people are starting to uh, make some changes and cut back. Yeah, we uh, we asked Canadians about uh, kind of, I guess, how they've adjusted their spending or if they have adjusted their spending kind of in recent months as inflation has kind of taken hold uh, this year, especially. Uh, and yeah, four and five, like you said, are cutting back spending uh, in some ways. So either that's kind of discretionary spending, delaying major purchases, driving less, uh, canceling vacations, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, it looks like a lot of Canadians are kind of adjusting their budget as inflation has kind of affected everyone. Uh, this seems to be going on. It seems to be dragging on. Many people thought that this would be short term as we come out of a pandemic. We're starting to see gas prices go down, but this seems to be a real problem for Canadian families. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even the Bank of Canada officials kind of thought it would be kind of transitory inflation, I believe is the term that they used. Uh, and it kind of stuck around even longer than they thought, because uh, we could definitely could see the beginning of it, like in last year, where there was some higher kind of inflationary numbers, whereas this year, obviously, we've seen some of the highest inflation since 1982, I believe. Um, though I guess the good news was that it 
has slowed a little bit in recent months. So July was only up 7.6% over last year, uh, which is a bit lower than we've seen other kind of year over year numbers recently. So that's, I guess, kind of the good news. Maybe maybe we're at the peak, but who knows? Uh, I found this interesting, and and obviously people get frustrated. Um, you know, nobody wants to be going through this in, in tough times, especially after being going through a, a two and a half year uh, global pandemic. But four and five, seventy eight percent say grocery stores are taking advantage of inflation to make increased profits. Are you surprised at this? Uh, I, I think there's certainly a perception out there. It seems that grocery stores uh, not only are kind of obviously prices have increased for everything, but people kind of believe mm. that maybe grocery stores are adding a little bit on the top. Uh, this kind of follows the Toronto Star investigation, which was looking at kind of this issue of so-called greedflation, where stores are possibly increasing prices more than the actual inflation kind of um, requires. And uh, the Toronto Star investigation looked and thought there might be a case where the prices of groceries kind of outpaced inflation. It seems like a lot of Canadians kind of agree with that. Of course, there have been kind of rebuttals from the grocery stores saying that uh, their increased profit margins are for other factors because they're managing their company better, because they're selling more high margin things that weren't selling as well during the pandemic, things like uh, makeup and even kind of like pharmaceutical products like cold medication, which weren't really selling as much during kind of the early parts Mm. of COVID, which now have kind of sold a bit more. Uh, and, you know, you bring up a valid point. During the pandemic, when nobody could afford to go out, or c- could go out, rather, everybody was locked down, more people were just in- eating more and-, and spending more on groceries. Do you feel that that's perhaps where some of this perception comes from? Uh, perhaps. It's kind of hard to tell on on that front. I mean, obviously, that, like, for a while, you couldn't go to, uh, like, mm-hmm. a restaurant if you wanted to, uh, though I guess a lot of places were still open for delivery, um, but that's kind of an expensive, expensive option, especially for Canadians. That were, there was a lot of uncertainty during the pandemic where you weren't really too sure what was going to happen next. Um, but yeah, I, I think part of it is just that like there is kind of this realization that everything's kind of costing a lot more and people are trying to look for reasons why. And I think kind of looking at greed maybe is kind of an easy way to say, well, this is the why prices are going up because companies are being greedy. So it's kind of it's a very complex issue. It's kind of hard to tell. Like it's very hard. Even the Toronto Star investigation didn't necessarily draw a straight line between the two. More kind of suggesting there might be a connection. It's very difficult to kind of suss out. Are Canadians concerned about the economy? Because obviously, if we're cutting back and whether it's driving uh, less, delaying a major purchase, as you, as you guys have laid out, uh, that's going to slow the economy down. Yeah, and it it seems like. At least for now, Canada's kind of overall GDP growth has uh, continued. It hasn't gone negative, in, which would kind of indicate um, a recession or possibly a one coming. Uh, so it, we asked about uh, for Canadians whether or not they were concerned that they could lose a job. Um, obviously, right now, it's kind of record unemployment, where it's actually very hard for most places to hire mm-hmm. people. Um, but still, one third of Canadians say that they're worried that they they or somebody in their household could lose a job because of the economy. So there is like a little bit of underlying, I think, uncertainty in the economy as a whole, uh, despite the fact that, yeah, like kind of all other indicators about employment and job levels are very positive right now. New survey from Angus Reid Institute shows that four in five Canadians are pinching pennies due to inflation, trying to cut their own personal costs. John Rowe with us, research associate with Angus Reid. John, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too, Scott. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I remember during the uh, early stages of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we'd say it's day number whatever and day number three and 30 and whatever. And now we've got to the point where uh, obviously we don't do that anymore. We're approaching the six month uh, period and Russia has ruled out a peace deal to end the Ukraine war as we get to the six month period. Let's bring in Christian Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute for an update. He is with us now. Christian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, good afternoon, Scott. Enjoying a little bit of sunshine in between the rain here. All right, so six months in, uh, doesn't seem to be any ho- sort of hope for a peace deal. Um, what does that mean? Where does this go? Uh, and again, does any of this resonate in Russia that it's been six months and there's no victory here? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, this is why there's no peace deal, because the Ukrainians are ascending and the Russians um, are clearly not looking very good going forward here. So the Russians continue to have significant structural and manpower problems that continues to hamper uh, them achieving the objectives that they had set for themselves. And these problems are likely going to mount uh, as the Russians start to run low on key ammunition uh, and as the Russians also run low on, of course, morale and trained soldiers. At the same time, the Ukrainians, of course, highly motivated, now getting some of the equipment that they've been looking for, being able to demonstrate that they can significantly disrupt uh, Russian supply and logistics lines, as well as hit their headquarters and the ability to strike uh, well into Russian territory in Crimea, as they've demonstrated over the last week. Uh, So as this goes on, it's looking better for Ukraine and it's looking worse for Russia. So you can see on both sides, the Russians are saying they want to achieve their objectives come hell or high water, and the Ukrainians are saying, why would we give up now uh, when we're at least able to, uh, to, to stave off the Russians and possibly be able to turn some of the tide here? What about Ukraine grain shipments? We heard a lot about that last week. Is, is that instrumental? How significant is that in all of this? Yeah, it at least shows that Russia and UK, Ukraine, through mediators, even though they're not talking directly, can uh, find some common ground on issues that have broad, uh, broad ramifications beyond the region. Uh, and so the next test case here, of, here, of course, will be the Zaporizhia nuclear plant and to see if uh, an IAEA team can actually get in there to try to assess what the circumstances are. Uh, and then see if the international community can succeed at convincing Russia to pull back from that uh, you know, from that plant, or at least cease its attempts to disconnect that plant from the Ukrainian grid. All of which are wrought with considerable risk in terms of the disruption to, for instance, the cooling capability uh, for both the nuclear reactors, as well as uh, the higher risk of the spent nuclear react and uh, fuel uh, fuel rods. Uh, will this drag on for a, a unusually long extended period of time, Christian? Because there really doesn't seem to be an out here for Putin. We really don't know what a win is for him. Uh, obviously, a loss is them getting out of, of, of Ukraine. But, but does this just like six months from now, we're still talking about this and still there's, it's, there's no headway here? 
Scott, you and I will be talking about this, I think, not months, but even years from now. What I think this will end up with is kind of like uh, the Kashmir region, the dispute between Pakistan and India, where the border sort of disputes from one side or the other uh, will continue to flare up from time to time and where this continues to remain an extremely high risk proposition. Uh, so uh, I think the, the best case scenario is is a, a ceasefire as everybody, um, as, as we get to a draw towards the winter time. Uh, but this conflict is not going to be resolved anytime soon. And I don't think there's going to be any sort of settlement because neither side, there's no conditions that I can see where either side would sign on to a settlement. So we're going to live with this precarious situation for a long time to come. But it also means, of course, the best way to deter the Russians from uh, engaging in further adventurism is to make sure that Ukraine not just has the ability to defend itself, but ultimately has the ability to defeat uh, Russia should the Ukrainian leadership and the Ukrainian people um, intend to do that because of the uh, moral hazards that it sets for other parts of the world, where, of course, other countries are having their eyes on uh, on other on, on, on countries and terrain within their neighborhood. The Russians have already recently threatened Kazakhstan. Uh, so clearly, Putin needs to be dissuaded from engaging in this sort of uh, redrawing of maps in any time in the near future. Obviously, Russia weaponizing in, uh, energy, and, and many are predicting a, uh, a, a tough situation for Europe through the winter. Uh, that being said, Canada and Germany have signed some sort of energy deal. Your thoughts on that or even more discussion about sending back turbines? Well, I mean, the energy deal, I mean, what, what's been discussed, the hydrogen, um, exporting hydrogen, I mean, this is sort of 10 years down the road. And I mean, really, this is a down payment. So the prime minister would have something to announce because the prime minister continues to refuse to talk about liquefied natural gas. Germany is building terminals. Um, it is still importing 35% of its gas from Russia. Now, of course, uh, the previous German leadership, both Chancellor Schroeder and Merkel, have a lot to answer for. But that doesn't mean that an ally like Canada should leave Germany hanging at the risk of considerable economic peril for Germany and considerable potential economic chaos. Um, the prime minister is going to have to jump over a shadow here and figure out how he can explain to Canadians that ultimately it is in Canada's interest to export liquefied natural gas uh, to Germany in the short and in the medium term, and that that will require building infrastructure because if Canada fails to do that, it ultimately um, fails to meet its own interests um, and it also fails to meet its obligations and interests to the international community more general, in particular, its closest NATO uh, allies. Uh, natural gas uh, versus hydrogen, both clean energies. Is this just pump, uh, punching it down the road? Because hydrogen is obviously not as developed as the natural gas industry. Yeah, I mean, the German Chancellor, of course, uh, in town here today. He's in Toronto tonight. Uh, he's traveling with representatives from uh, all the German uh, car uh, makers and industry. They're looking for Canadian rare earths. Uh, so there is genuine interest in Canadian hydrogen, uh, but it's going to take quite some time to be able to get into a position where we can actually develop that uh, for export uh, in a capacity that's going to be useful to allies in Europe. Uh, whereas, of course, we don't have considerable uh, constraints in terms of exporting liquefied natural gas. The constraints are mainly in actually getting the infrastructure uh, that would allow that in the short term uh, through uh, uh, likely New Brunswick and St. John and in the medium term through natural gas fields off Newfoundland, um, all of which the Prime Minister could then invest in the energy transition and in green energy. Uh, so I think there is a grand bargain to be struck. The, the question is, is the Prime Minister willing to go to bat with some of his boutique electorate uh, that uh, doesn't want to build any um, 
infrastructure, critical infrastructure, anytime ever again if it involves uh, um, if it involves natural gas or oil. I don't know how we can continue to avoid the discussion. Uh, Christian Leprac with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for your time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Have a good afternoon. We found out uh, last week that uh, CTV news anchor Lisa Laflemme uh, was being let go. And the company said that it was a business decision. But uh, a lot of public outcry on this and a lot of social media response. Uh, and it is not going well from a PR perspective for CTV. To talk more about all of this, uh, Jeffrey Dvorkin is with us, senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeff, as always, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you for inviting me. So your thoughts when you first heard of this, Jeff? Oh, boy. A good time not to be in management. Um, (laughs) it uh, It was so poorly handled And it kind of revealed the dirty little secret about television news, which is um, it's basically kind of sexist and ageist and what some people are calling lookist. How does one, how is one supposed to look on television? And I think that uh, for my sins, I started off in TV news and, uh, but then went over to radio where fortunately People have faces made for radio. It's not. Hmm. It's not quite the demand that television has. The normal approach should be, and mostly is, because most TV news is about presenting oneself in a way that isn't a distraction from the story that the reporter or the pro or the host of the program is trying to convey. Um, you don't want to. You don't want men or women to be on the air and people will say, well, just look at that and Hmm. not listen or absorb what the story is all about. And I think what happened, what happened at CTV is really a a classic lesson uh, for people in, in television journalism that the audience doesn't want to be distracted, but they don't want someone who is wearing inappropriate presentations that is going to be a distraction. I think we're now at the verge where things are really starting to change significantly. And we're seeing, uh, certainly in Canada, not necessarily in the States, um, the very fact that you have uh, women wearing hijabs on camera now, which is something that maybe five to 10 years ago would not have been considered to be appropriate but it's now considered to be acceptable. And we're, see, we're going to see more and more of that. So I think the, the good side of this story is that people will say, well, who cares what the person looks like as long as it isn't a distraction? And I think the fact that um, the managers at CTV claimed or were starting to claim that it was about Lisa Laflamme going gray um, is really is really kind of silly and 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 I think there will, there will be some serious fallout and consequences from this. Uh, there, you, you you talked about the hair color issue, which I agree is, is pretty silly. They said it was a business decision, but again, we really don't know why. And this is an accredited, well respected 
uh, reporter, obviously, journalist. So clearly it's not a performance issue, or it certainly doesn't appear to be that from the audience uh, perspective. The fact that they have not explained why, is that why we're coming up with all of these other reasons? Uh, could it just be, like most of these decisions, it's about money? Well, of course it's about money, and it's also about... And now we're entering into the realm of gossip, which is what journalists really say they don't like, but actually love it. Uh, (laughs) Gawker Media said that all of the talk around a bar after work is what should be on the front page of the paper or the lead story Mm. of the newscast. And to a certain extent, they're right. One of the things that is being talked about, uh, mostly in the Toronto Sun, which seems to have some really interesting perspectives on this, um, is, are there two things? One is that uh, the CTV National News went after uh, Patrick Brown a few years ago, yeah, and yeah. they felt that this was a kind of a Me Too story, and it turned out not to be. And that was a, yes. that was that turned out to be an embarrassment for for CTV. The other yeah. thing that the Sun has reported is that there was a fight inside that news organization over what stories could be held to be broken on the 11 o'clock newscast and which stories should be on their website. And there was a bit of a fight, according to this story in The Sun, that uh, Lisa Laflamme and her producer said, we want to hold some news stories for more impact on our nightly newscast. And the business argument against that is, most news organizations are moving more quickly and more directly to an online presence. Hmm. Hmm. And that is, that's a fight that a lot of news organizations are having. The, the great Washington Post uh, with Bob Woodward, Bob Woodward has, has had a lot of stories broken, but he's kept it for his books. And he's come under some criticism for... Uh, holding back on news that people really needed to know because he was saving it for his publication. Hmm. And I think that this is going to be an increasing dilemma for a lot of news organizations, especially ones that are involved in breaking news. Where should that breaking news happen? Should it happen where there's the largest audience or should it happen where the younger eyeballs are going to, which is online? Um, as this investigation moves forward, there's a third party that's being brought in. What are your thoughts in regard to that? Will we ever find out what happened here? Well, we'll find out some of which, but I think that one of the places that's been doing some uh, pretty amazing reporting on this is a website uh, called Canada Land, run by a former CBCer called Jesse Brown. And he has been breaking... Canada land has been breaking a lot of stories. People are leaking there. And leaks and gossip are the currency of the people who are not in power in any news organization. <laughs> As maybe maybe we found out to, our, uh, to some effect uh, in the past, that when there is a, a criticism of senior management, that's where the leaks happen. And Canada Land and apparently the Toronto Sun are two places where people are leaking like crazy. Are you surprised that this is getting so much attention being in traditional media, which many say is passe? 
Well, but first of all, it's not passe. Um, most people, not young people, but most, the largest audiences for gathering uh, daily news is on radio and television. It's not online. Now, it is moving more quickly to be online, but it's not there yet. Um, so we're that's why we're at this critical point where the habits of how to consume information are changing pretty quickly, but there still is a solid audience for the nightly news. Jeffrey Dvorkin with us, senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto, Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News Media in, or the News in a Digital Age. Jeff, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Cheers. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Joining us is Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up right after the 6 o'clock news and is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well. How are you? I'm doing very good. Thanks so much. You know, uh, last week, uh, I believe it was uh, teachers talking about their new contract negotiations and the potential of a strike vote. Uh, this week, we have education workers uh, the same sort of thing, holding a strike vote, uh, one in 11 percent raise. Wow. Who doesn't? Uh, and the fact that they're being offered two, they believe is, uh, uh an insult with inflation sitting at, uh, eight percent. And the saber rattling has started again. And I guess my question to you is, Scott, um, we know where we were, were with this discussion before the global pandemic. Does anybody have the patience for this? Um, coming out of a global pandemic. It just seems to me that we go through this every mm. so many months or years, and it's just like, it, have we learned nothing from any of this? Interesting you bring this up. We're going to be talking about this on the show. I've got the uh, the head of the union group that represents the uh, education workers coming on to talk about this, and one of those questions that we're going to be asking is about that idea of 11%. I mean, look, I, I think that a lot of people may be very sympathetic to their point of view and say, you know, you're not making as much as teachers and, you know, in inflation has spread across everywhere and life costs more and everything else. But uh, Scott, I got to tell you, I, I don't know that there's going to be a whole lot of the seg segment of the population that's going to say, oh, yeah, I'm fully behind them demanding essentially over three years, a 35 percent pay increase. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> here's the problem with with the thought behind that is even if you support them that money has to be paid for by the taxpayers and the bulk of the taxpayers don't work for the government although it's getting more and more all the time and none of the people who are working in private sector or very few have seen big raises we're all in the same position everyone else is with inflation yeah. that's why inflation's so bad because none of our salaries are keeping up with it so now and keep in mind this is the first of the government negotiations like all the other public sector unions are watching this one and mm -hmm. so if all of a sudden they get this and the it goes on the taxpayers and that means all the private sector people who aren't getting raises now have to pay more taxes so the teachers the education workers and teachers and all the other public sector people make more while all the rest of us actually we'll make less because we'll have to pay more. I, I don't mm. see that there's going to be a huge amount of sympathy for that kind of number. If they had said 4% and we'll work down to three or two and a half. Yeah. You know what? I bet you that there's a lot of people inside of you would say, yeah, I can see that. 
but 11.7, I'm waiting to hear the explanation for how that's going to fly. It seemed before the pandemic started that people really started to to zoom in on this, that really started to focus on this and realizing that despite listening to the same argument for 30 or 40 years, that it's all about the kids, that it's all about giving your kid a better education. I think we finally realized this is just a labor union negotiation. It's as simple as that. And and it's no different than any other uh, union organizing and and trying to do the best deal for its members. That's what they get paid membership dues to do. Scott, Um, look, how many billions of dollars more? And I don't have the number in front of me. Someone could find it very easily if they went on Google right now. I don't have that available right this second. How many billions of dollars more is Ontario's government spending today than it did a decade ago or a decade and a half ago? And if it was all about if you pay more, we will have better results. Surely all those EQAO scores and everything else would have gone up because we're paying billions more. But that doesn't happen. EQAO and others, whether you like them or not, they've gone down in a lot of cases. So simply paying people more doesn't guarantee better results. It, It just doesn't. And you can say that for every single profession. You might keep people in that profession if you pay them more. I'm not disputing that argument. But for the average person, if you just say, hey, Scott Thompson, I tell you what, we'll pay you an extra $10,000 a year for your show. Does your show immediately become $10,000 better? Probably for you. But for everyone else, I would say, I, I, how do you quantify that? And, and if there's no, and even if you could quantify it, I'm not sure you would get a $10,000. You're just getting $10,000 more. Again, it was always all about the kids. I think we finally realized it's not all about the kids. And I'm starting to see the same thing happen with the discussion on health care. Uh, instead of, you know, coming up with a, a, a solution, a new, a new template, whatever is needed here from all of the provinces that they've been discussing for the last two and a half years. Now, once again, we're hammering the provinces looking for, you know, that Band-Aid solution that we had last year and the year before and the year before and the decade before that. And And, you know, at the end of the day, people don't want to hear about your labor contract. They want the system fixed. And, you know, again, I'm going to see, I think we're starting to see this in the healthcare industry as well, because now all of a sudden it's about bringing in this and bringing in that and, and so on and so forth. And all organizations and people with an agenda are looking for their piece of the pie. When Canadians really, all they're looking forward to, to doing is to solving this problem and, and coming up with a better healthcare system. Ultimately, Scott, the problem with all of these problems is that there is a limited pie. There, you, yeah. you can divide the pie however you want. There's a limited pie, and if you expand the pie, that means everybody is paying more, and who can afford to pay more right now? So yeah. what has been lost in all this is we can always say, okay, let's spend more on healthcare. But what we forget is there's an option here. We can either say, let's pay more on healthcare, but not remove anything else so that our tax dollars have to go up. Or we can say, let's pay more on to healthcare, which I think many of us agree with. But what in the rest of government can we reduce that might redirect some of that money to go there? We never do that. Why do we not say, if we're going to pay an extra billion to healthcare, let's find a billion or 800 million or something that we can save somewhere else that maybe isn't as important. So we don't always have to be hitting everybody with more and more taxes or more deficit and debt that ultimately our kids and grandkids are going to pay. I've never understood why we can't 
square this circle and say a dollar in, a dollar out. And the discussion will continue on the Scott Radley Show coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. I, I was saying that the Bell Media were a bunch of skunks. That's how I ended the story. How they let it go was very sneaky on their part. Um, you know, to tell her in June that she was going to be, like her contract would not be renewed. And for her to have to deliver the news from the time that she was advised as such until the time that she departed and not to tell anyone, I thought that was very sneaky of Bell Media. media. I'm not watching CTV uh, ever again for as long as I live. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.